Comic Scene, the podcast. Students take over. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of the Comic Scene podcast. You may be noticing the absence of the dulcet sounds of Phil Vaughn's voice, your usual host, and that is because we, Rachel Davis and Grace Wright, have taken this podcast over. And by taking over, I mean we have shipped Phil to Canada. This episode, we're going to be taking you through a whirlwind tour of the past, present, and future of comics and Dundee, and of course the wider world. Since Phil isn't here, we've decided to make this a student-focused podcast, and we're inspired by the theme of the University of Dundee's Humanity Postgraduate Conference 2019, uh, the topic of which is arts and humanities in the community, past, present, and future. Uh, There's a lot of amazing work being done on this campus, and it really sort of fired us up. But as always, it fired us up about comics. (laughs) Facts. Just facts. (laughs) Um, So in the spirit of breaking out and breaking away, we have taken you out of the studio and down into the University of Dundee archives. Uh, Archive services at the University of Dundee was established in 1976 and is part of culture and information along with museum services and information governance. Um, This is a really cool part of the university and sometimes overlooked, but they hold information relating to the university, to individuals, industry, organizations in the Tayside area, and beyond. Uh, This is an incredible resource, not just for students, uh, but for the public at large, and they offer um, access to the reading room um, and a number of services. There's also a very lovely gift shop I noticed on my way in, and they even have one of those adult coloring books. So I'm just saying, support something local, feel a little less stressed, come to the archive. The uh, coloring book was also done by a previous comics master's student, Monica Burns. So a little plug for Monica there. Yes. <laughs> even better. And this actually is a great segue into the fact that of all of the incredible information that this archive holds, most important, I would say to all of us, is the absolutely fabulous comics collection that the archive has begun to amass. Um, and here to talk about it with us is a voice you may recognize from the second episode of this podcast, Haley Austin, PhD student and all-around comics wizard. So hello, Haley, and welcome. Hello. Thank you. Happy to be here again. I think I should get some frequent flyer miles um, for having been on this podcast a second time. You're w- Hello, everyone. <laughs> We're absolutely glad to have you back. Um, and it, it, Rachel, you pointed out before we started that we are missing Haley's previous podcast partner in crime, Olivia. So in addition to being a student takeover, this is an American takeover. <gasps> American woman! Dun, dun, dun. Uh, America. America. Uh, So anyways, back to the archives located here in the sunny Dundee. Um, Haley, to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about the collection, where it's coming from, um, sort of how did it get out into the world, into this archive? Okay, yeah. So we have actually, so not just one comics collection, there's many comics collections here uh, at the University of Dundee's archives. Um, So the comics collection started in about 2004. 
uh, with mass donations from a couple of different people. So first we started collecting a bunch of 2000 ADs that weren't touched until 2011 when there was an intern here kind of going through them. Um, but she didn't make it through all of them. And then flashback to last year when I was the next person to touch anything. Oh, Lord. Um, and so I got an internship down here mostly to see what we had in the archives and put it in correct boxes. A lot of them were in bags. Um, some of them had water damage. Uh, we got um, about a bazillion uh, on record um comics from grant morrison that i had to go through uh it was a lot so we have and we don't just have physical comics we've got comic scripts we've got drafts we've got copies of every comic that's been made um through the universe press um which is our local university press we've got um drafts but perhaps the most important, well, impressive perhaps, part of our um, collection is that we have about 30,000, 3,000, I'm trying to remember the number. <laughs> we have a bunch, a couple thousand um, scripts online. Oh. So that ranges from Alan Moore to Commando Scripts to anyone who just has sent us a script. We've got Sean Tan scripts. We've got a bazillion of them um, that I have to go through. <laughs> uh, which, um, so I'm focusing more on the physical stuff, making sure that we've got it all in boxes that are appropriate and not bags. And then going through and seeing actually what we have. What do we have in these collections? Um, so that's a good segue to talk about um, the oldest part of our collection, which is um, Punch Magazine. So Punch Magazine, for the comics fans that don't know, um, is the oldest um, UK kind of comics magazine. Um, it was a magazine that first uh, coined the term cartoon, which is really exciting. So we've got a collection starting from 1895 of the bound um, Punch books, which is really exciting. Uh, we've got tons of them. And what's really interesting, too, is where this collection came from. So the collection was donated by, oh, I can't remember her last name now, Stephanie. She was the co-founder of Canon Gate Books, which is amazing. Kind of a big deal. They did Life of Pi and other kind of classic books. So she helped publish them. Um, she recently died, um, but we have her collection of Punch magazine, as well as her vast collection of Rolling Stone magazine, which is really exciting. Um, so thank you, Stephanie, for so kindly giving us these wonderful resources to look at. Um, speaking of amazing women, I've got two other uh, female-led comics here um, from two different collections. So um, some of the collections were donated from a university uh, professor who retired. And when he retired, he had he donated all of his books to the university as well as a collection of comics that they had no idea what to do with. They were just like, okay, thanks. Um, so he had a huge... He loved DC. He loved women. He, <laughs> You could tell because he bought every single... Uh, um, DC comic that had Supergirl on it 
like from like he has all of them. It doesn't matter if she's not in the story. If she's on the cover, he bought it, which is great. He was also a huge fan of Lois Lane. So she's been a bit underrated since her comics run in the 60s. But 60s Lois Lane is best Lois Lane because all of this crazy stuff happens to her. I'm looking at the uh, Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane derivative um, title. Boo. But um, she. this is uh, number 92. And the cover is Lois Lane has been turned into a centaur. And um, Superman is going, oh, no, pretty much. Um, And it's a spell. But the other great thing is, and Olivia Hicks is the um, current super horse um, person, (laughs) expert, perhaps. This This is a super horse issue. Super horse or comet is perhaps the least known, least well known super pet. Uh, but he is the best, the horniest, the weirdest, <laughs> and he's in love with Supergirl. I'm sorry, by horniest, are we referring to a unicorn horn? We are not. He is in love with Supergirl because he's actually a centaur that was mistakenly turned into a horse. When he wanted to be turned into a human, yeah. I mean, this is some, guy. yeah. <laughs> this is some background. Um, but in this one, Lois Lane, but the same person came back and turned Lois Lane into a horse, and Superhorse can uh, talk to people telepathically, and he's like, "Ooh, that horse is cute," and he runs over and he goes, "Oh, it's Lois." He's like, "I've always liked Lois. This could work," and then Lois is like, "No way, Jose!" Like. <laughs> step off excuse you <laughs> and he's like what come on <laughs> uh, nay, Mr. exactly nay. exactly oh. <laughs> um you've got a great anamorph kind of panel here uh where he turns into a horse again because only when a comet comes around which is why his name's comet um can he turn back into a human and he chooses to turn into bronco bill which is an interesting choice um on super horse's part but in the end, um, he manages to get Lois turned into a centaur and she's kind of freaking out. And then that's the first time when Superman comes back and goes, I don't know if I can make that work. He's kind of like, I have to think about what I want out of my relationship with Lois because I don't know if I could make her being a centaur work. But luckily, the power of a rainbow saves her. She simply walks under a rainbow and it's turned back into a human. Oh my god, is this a Lucky Charms tie-in? You would think. This is this is called drugs. <laughs> that is, this issue is called We Were on Drugs. And I love it. Uh, so yeah, if you haven't, if you have some old Lois Lanes um, at home, definitely go read them because they are a trip. And if they have Comet, if Comet's in anything, he is great as well because he's a creep. I've never had more confirmation of why I am in this program than just hearing you describe this issue. Yes, I, and the fact that we have this in the archive makes me so happy. Like, of all the issues to have, this is one of my favorites. Um, yeah, all kind, Lois has all kinds of weird stuff happen to her, and Superman goes, mm, and then she gets magically saved, and he's like, oh, okay. Um, so, justice for Lois. Um, oh, and some of them, my, one of my favorite things, too, is in these old issues, being able to go back and look at letters to Lois. 
because in one of them, my favorite one, I don't think it's this one. So a, a woman writes in and goes, what is Lois thinking? She should dump him. Like she, this issue should, it shouldn't be called Superman's girlfriend. It should be Superman's ex-girlfriend because he doesn't, he treats her so wrong. She deserves better. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I agree. Talk about a woman being ahead of her time. Exactly. Well, and I think this points out one of the things that's really important about archives and being able to look at primary sources is that you get to see all of these extra elements, all of these contextual elements around these amazing comics. Oftentimes in reprints, they're not reprinting the letters. You don't see the ads. Um, and there's just something about actually being able to see the like the primary source object uh, to bust out some academia here uh, <laughs> that just sort of really heightens the experience. And you don't have to come at it through the lens of somebody else's opinion. You can make your own opinions. Exactly. And even just looking at this lowest issue, the one we have has all kinds of stamps on it. One says it's the agent um, on City Arcade from Dundee. So we know this is a Dundee. Someone from Dundee had this. Um, it came through Dundee. It's also got how much it cost at the time, perhaps in a charity shop where our guy got it from. You can trace all these interesting histories. A lot of them have um, street names or family names written on them so that the agent knew who they were giving it to. It's just an interesting to look at the physical thing and to touch the tactile kind of nature of them because you don't get that in bound books or reprints or anything like that. So you get a lot more from these. Um, and another segue <laughs> into another great woman is Spider-Woman. This comes from another uh, collection that was donated from someone in the university. Um, he had this crazy amount of great comic. Well, Pretty much everyone who donated them has amazing comics. Um, but one of the best things about Spider-Woman is that she was originally written by a woman. So this is the 1978 run. Um, this is the Spider-Woman number nine, Eye of the Needle. And while this isn't necessarily a um, critical issue, um, it's just fantastic to see that a woman was brought in to write about... Um, a female superhero, which we don't see a lot even today, um, and it shows. So um, I, it's yeah. <laughs> so looking at this this cover, um, I love where you're going. You're going the like very interesting female author, female character. Uh, but all I can see when I look at Beware Eye of the Needle is a panel um, from Jack Cole's famous Murder Morphine and Me. Yeah. Uh, for all of you out there, there's no way to describe this panel. Just just go find. It's um, in the public domain currently, I believe. Uh, Murder, Morphine, and Me by Jack Cole. And look for that needle to the eye scene. It will haunt you. <laughs> you will see it everywhere. Um, <laughs> yes. It, so you can tell this is uh, after the code was lifted. Because we could include kind of different uh, things like that in there. Um and I don't know, this is kind of her original outfit, which I love. Um, it's not that disgusting, um, not Moretti, the Spider Woman one from 2000 and was it 15? Who, who's the guy who does porn and he drew Spider Woman's butt oh, that looked like an apple? Manera. Yeah, it's not that Manera cover with um, Spider Woman's butt and boobs in a completely 
un- impossible position that um, happened at the same time we had our first female Thor. So uh, Marvel, you know how important female Thor is to you. She and is. <laughs> so uh, Marvel tends to take one step forward and two steps back um, in their female representation, female writers, um, that kind of stuff. So it's interesting to look at the past and see how it's really influenced kind of the future and all that. Well, hello. Thank you guys so much for this history. Like, I am a neophyte to comics archiving. You two are archive angels. You volunteer here. I'm convinced some days you live here. It's true. true. Yeah. I wish I lived here. I see you. (laughs) That does explain the bunk bed in the corner. I did have a question about that. But just hearing about this, like, it's so heartening to know that we have a history as comics people and to see like institutions like a university being able to collect centaur lois lane and like not as fetishized spider woman (laughs) no and it really makes me wonder like archiving comics like why is it so important like i know that must seem like such a silly question and again especially since i just mentioned how much i'm so happy that we have this but like why is it important to have comics archived? Well, to go back to what we were talking about um, previously, there is something important, I think, about having, uh, you know, the source material available. Um, so much of what we know about comics in the past is now filtered through this sort of mythologizing about certain popular stories. And for me, at least, being able to go back to the original source material um, allows us to make connections or understand things outside the sort of dominant history um, that's been sort of placed there. Uh, For example, um, I brought out a fantastic issue um, of The Eagle uh, from 1984. And the cover has a character that suspiciously looks like the watcher. Um, we'll, we'll have an image up and you can see it, but it's the sort of connection where you wouldn't necessarily look at anything about the Eagle or the watcher and there be a connection drawn. But when you look at this image, when you look at this issue of the Eagle, it sort of immediately sets off a light bulb and really with comics, because they're so visual, it's almost necessary to see the comic itself in order to draw these connections. Um, but also, as we've been talking about, um, Haley has pulled a wide range um, of comics for us to look at, but there's been this common theme um, of female creators, female publishers, female characters. And it's not necessarily a story that's told often in sort of the dominant since we're talking about superhero comics to a certain extent, especially the superhero genre, but it's here. We just need to be able to access it through these items. Yeah, and because comics are such a visual medium, I think we're able, as you were saying, Grace, we're able to make these kind of visual connections or see these visual metaphors, these visual tie-ins that whether they're meant or not, we can make these connections and we can ask why, why at this time, do we have these things? Why are these things represented this way? And when it comes to female representation, I think that's something that hasn't been done as much. But now we have so many female scholars in the field and are saying, absolutely not. There's 
there's no way you can ignore all these women who have been here since comics began, since the first comic, which is a debate on what is <laughs> that is. But um, there is an entire book on how Ali Sloper was probably drawn and written by uh, Mary Duvall, who's the wife of who the man who's always credited. So we need to look at these things. We need to say look at these kind of invisible or rewritten histories and say, no, women have been here the whole time and they will continue to be whether you like it or not. And this actually brings us um, to a box that I've been, I've been sort of peeking at on the corner of the table that fits in really well with this theme. Um, and we'll, we'll get to what's in the box in a second, but it is a box of, um, sort of draft of drafts um and different comics and notes from Nicholas Streeton who sort of perfectly in terms of our conversation is one of the co-founders um with Sarah Lightman both of them are doctors by the way uh of Ladies Do Comics which is an incredible organization uh that sort of promotes uh female identifying um and non-binary creators to sort of help uplift their voices that being said they it is a forum in which everyone is welcome so it's not just for a certain group of people it's for everybody but to sort of talk about these important issues um and rachel and i in our future have an exciting announcement about ladies do comics so in case you were thinking about switching off this podcast uh i'm afraid you're gonna have to hang with us to figure out what that really really exciting sort of future announcement is going to be oh yeah we're just going to dangle that in front of you right there you think you can leave oh no you stay tuned absolutely but since we're still here in the past in the archives um Haley, would you mind telling us a little bit about what nicola so generously donated to the university Sure. Um, so we've had a relationship with Nicola Streeton for a long time. She's a fellow comic scholar, but also a comics writer and um, creator. She's fantastic. Um, if you ever have a chance to meet her, just run up and say hi. She's the kindest person you could ever meet um, and so happy. Um, and She is truly incredible. <laughs> I have been able to hear her speak multiple times and have met her in person and she i think we can all agree the three of us are big fans you know rachel if you want to jump on the praise train here nicola if you're listening i love you (laughs) (laughs) um and so we nicola wrote um billy me and you which is the uh a comic about how she dealt with the grief of losing her son billy um, and it's amazing. It's an amazing piece of graphic medicine, um, of trauma, of um, kind of how you deal with the most horrific thing that could ever happen to a parent. And it's drawn incredibly, um, I don't know, The it's so raw. Um, and she says that she bases a lot of it off of her diaries. So here we have... Uh, she kindly donated a bunch of her drafts. Um, this was, I believe, her master's thesis um, was Billy, Me, and You. And so she's got different drafts. Um, uh, just right here, she's got a uh, licorice as well is the um, first kind of publication that it came in, which was um, a 
Yeah, an anthology that she did with her daughter um, with like paper dolls and just anything, anything and everything. But this is where she first started um, anthologizing um, Billy, Me and You before it was published as a graphic novel that you can buy, which I highly recommend. Um, but here in the archive, so we've got all of her the licorice that um, it came out in first, as well as here's just a sketch. It's thumbnails. It's... Um, different ideas that she's doing um my favorite are the the different versions she has of drawing herself but also drawing um how she rates people with like how they um uh handle or respond to her saying that billy has died because that's my favorite part in the comic is that she rates their responses like oh negative one or oh that was pretty good a five um but she's got lots of different drafts of that um we've got a a letter to Golnar, um, oh. who um, Golnar is our well, she's my supervisor as well, one of my advisors as well as the uh, one of the professors that helps run the course here at Dundee. Um, so she was just um, writing, saying, "I what's in the box?" and "Thank you so much." See you in Bournemouth, which is uh, was where the IGNCC International uh, Graphic Novels and comics conference i think Woo, off the top of my head uh that was in bournemouth last year um so that's where we saw nicola but she sent us all this stuff so we've got drafts from 2011 um all her different drafts uh letters just everything like that it's an amazing resource and we're working on right now getting um copies of her diaries because she wrote the majority of billy me and you based off of um the memories the really raw memories in her diary so um we're working on that stay tuned um but we hope to soon have copies available of her diary so that you can look at the the story how this graphic novel came to be from the scripting stage all the way through to the finished product which is what we hope to showcase in the archives for those who don't necessarily know about that huge process that goes into everything um, but yeah Nicola's amazing and I can't wait to see her soon <laughs> but uh, yeah back to you ladies well so I feel like we could keep talking about this forever um, because archives and comics are sort of the the Venn diagram, and at the center is just my perfect happiness. Um, but I think you have a bunch of comic students to give the benefit of your knowledge, so I think we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, so for our section in the past, before we move on into the present, is there any final words that you ladies would like to say? Um, yes, yeah, so... <clears throat> having the pleasure of listening to you guys today, I really feel like the benefit of having an archive is that you're able to see that the past is not singular, it's plural, and that there are different ways of coming to the past and different relationships, whether it's a personal relationship of seeing somebody write down their family name in a comic book to seeing someone's diaries and creating a comic book. It really allows people to reclaim a sense of history with their own identity like hey women have been a part of this from the beginning with Ali Sloper women are still a part of this other like politics can really be involved in this and that's been really so wonderful to have so thank you both so much for this thank you to the archive for having us and please feel free to visit the University of Dundee archive again it is open to the public their reading room is open Monday Tuesday Wednesday not Thursday but Friday <laughs> 
yes, please feel free to come and visit wonderful people here. You might even run into Haley and Grace. And please, they, I imagine you guys would love to talk about comics with anybody who comes in here. Yeah, definitely. And also, if you're interested in just kind of a comic that talks about what we have in the archives and how to access the archives with a lovely photo comic as well. Ooh, okay, throwback. Um, By please- fam- famous author, uh, Haley Austin. Uh, uh, well, sure. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I created, last time I was interning in the archive, I created a ar- the Chronicle, which is an archive and museum anthology. It's free online, so if you just Google Chronicle Archive and Museum Anthology, it'll come up. You can download it for free and look at um, how other students have taken what was in the past um, and either talked about how different... Um, collections got here the importance of different collections or just were inspired to create new works based on these old comics check out chronicle online (laughs) fantastic well and i also as we wrap this up just want to shout out to sharon jan and caroline um, and everyone else who works down here in the archives they really are the nicest most helpful people and whether you are here for comics or not they can help you find answers in the past um, or just discover some really cool new facts so thank you so much and it looks like Phil might have figured out where we are. So we are going to relocate, lock the door, and move into the present. Bring in the assassins! And in keeping with our conference stream for the postgraduate conference, Arts and the Humanities in the Community, Past, Present, and Future, I would like to share free pieces of current events in the comics industry and get your opinion, Grace, as well as our listenership. You up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you can tell from the last segment, I'm very much rooted in the past. But I think the important thing to remember is that as much as we study the past, we really need to bring it into sort of present issues and, you know, present comics, because there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. Absolutely. Couldn't put it better myself. So item number one, this was actually introduced to me by our course mate and the fabulous comics creator, Dan Barnfield. Make sure to check him out on Twitter at Danny Barnfield. Didn't pay me for that promo, but I will accept cash. So Will Terry is a comics creator. He's been around for a while. You can see him a lot in the Comics Con circuit. Fantastic. Yes, he successfully kickstarted a little book before. He has a successful Kickstarter record. And recently, he tried to do Little Heroes book on Kickstarter, a follow-up to his previous successful book, also titled Little Book. And he was at 783% completed. Like, his Kickstarter was more or less going to be funded. And then all of a sudden, Kickstarter took down the page, citing a, quote, intellectual property dispute. And the main reason you could see that is, if I could just show you this image, Grace, these were the characters of his book. His little book series was taking characters like, you know, Jack Sparrow and Venom, all these characters from the Marvel Universe and Disney and such, and creating them as children. So basically characters that weren't his own work. And he was going to sell that. He's done that on the concert before. If you go to his website, willterry.com, that is a large body of his work. And so I imagine the intellectual property dispute came from one of those companies citing his characters. And 
I believe it's starting to get a bit serious because Will Terry, after the Kickstarter was taken down, posted on his YouTube channel a response to this, and that video has since been taken down. And he's even mentioned on a thread where he initially put that link on his Twitter that it got, quote, complicated. So I imagine this legal dispute might actually be going forward. But he's still posting on his Twitter, and please do check him out, at Will Terry, free, free, free. Phenomenal artwork. But I'd really like to get your thoughts upon hearing this, because I think there's something really interesting about creators, because... We've been to cons. We've seen creators do that kind of artwork where they're taking fan characters. And I have walls covered with that. I'm participating in that. I love my golden girls dressed up as DC heroines. By the way, Rose Nyland as Harley Quinn is my one and only cosplay forever. So, like, there are interesting issues between ownership and who gets that. What are you thinking? Well, absolutely. And not to not to take this back into the past now that we've finally <laughs> escaped. Um but so often we look at the history of superheroes, of different characters, um, and it is very much a commercial industry. This It's so oftentimes easy to get caught up in, you know, the art and the magic and the mythology of these characters that you often forget that a lot of decisions, a lot of storylines have come from um, industry practices, the need to make money the need to, you know, save oneself from bankruptcy as a company. Um, And it's certainly a very interesting gray zone in between what's clearly copyright infringement and then, you know, what is part of this beautiful fan culture that surrounds comics. Um, Coming at this cold, you know, just having heard about this, It's an interesting question um, because you kind of have three entities here. You have the entities that own the copyright to these characters, um, a creator who's doing something creative and interesting and obviously has a lot of interest in, you know, from his fans as well as fans from the characters. And then you have this sort of entity of Twitter coming in and YouTube coming in and um, you said it was Kickstarter coming in and sort of, you know, taking down the Kickstarter, taking down his YouTube video where he talks. I would actually be interested in why the video was taken down because it seems... I can't imagine what content was in that video unless it's actually a legal battle. And I don't know how that works. How does the law work, Rachel? How does it work, Indy? That is beyond the scope of this podcast and my reality. Actually, it's interesting because he took down the YouTube video himself. It said it was removed by the user. And I'm imagining it might have to do with legal repercussions because you don't necessarily want that coming to court. I cannot speak for Will Terry. I'm not 100% positive, but... Does that add a layer of context for you? or? Yeah, well, I imagine if he took it down, it would have something to do with the legalities. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, I do have sympathy for him. Obviously, he was creating something. And, you know, I really love supporting creators who are starting, you know, from their own drawing spaces and using Kickstarter as a way to reach fans that they might not be able to otherwise. You get incredible stories um, that people want, that people desire, that sometimes don't find space in traditional publishing platforms. And I love that there is this culture of supporting creators and writers. You see these fabulous projects coming out. Um, On the other hand, there is some question of taking ideas and characters uh, that already existed and using those for your art. I mean, it becomes very complicated. It becomes a legal matter. It becomes a business matter. Um, It becomes a fandom matter. 
Exactly. So I continue. Well, I'm more actually familiar um, because of my bookstore background with this in terms of novels and fan fiction, Mm. which I love and I think creates this incredible fan space. But the contention has always, or the sort of line has always been, fan fiction is not for profit. As soon as it becomes for profit, it's illegal. Mm. Um, Somebody tell E.L. James that. Don't get me started on Fifty Shades of Grey and how mad I am. <laughs> That's a different podcast. That's our other podcast. Listen to my hundred-part podcast, <laughs> Why I Find the Romantic Elements of Fifty Shades of Grey Incredibly pop- Problematic on a Number of Levels. I'm here. I'm subscribed. Yeah. Sorry, you guys thought you were listening to a comics podcast? We are changing that up right now. What? <laughs> Anyways, back to, back, to the, back to the question at hand. Um... <laughs> I would actually be really interested in what the specific legalities of that are, because as you mentioned, it is something, especially at cons, that we sort of start to approach this this boundary. And where is that boundary, technically? I think it's a, a question that a lot of creators and a lot of fans are a little bit fuzzy on. Um, and you want to support the things that you love, but you also want to see these, you know, interesting new takes. I mean, that who... Who is the crossover, the Golden Girls crossover you mentioned? With DC heroine. So you have Rose Nyland as Harley Quinn. Yes. You have Catwoman, Blanche Devereaux. Yes. Of course. I'm absolutely here for that. And I want to see that. But I think it's important, you know, knowing what the industry, you know, sort of the laws that they're operating within. Because they're very strict laws. And you're you're dealing with some some pretty heavyweight corporations here. Absolutely. It just highlights for me the relationship between the industry and the fandom and how it's a very much a symbiotic necessary relationship because the reason that Marvel and DC and all these companies are so big are because of the fans and the fan creations and the fan works that are surrounding this. Like seeing fandoms on YouTube with like the MCU or the DCEU videos, seeing fan art, fan fiction, that is such good publicity and free publicity. And you don't see them attack every single person. Yeah, exactly. but how many of those people are making money? That's the thing. But at cons, they are making money to a lo- lower scale, perhaps, than a 783% funded Kickstarter. And I'm curious to see if there's, like, a profit limit that comes into this when they start paying attention. But at the same time, as much as we need these companies, they need us. And these companies need creators as well. I mean, famously think about, like, Bob Kane and the creators of Batman, the creators of Superman, how much they lost the rights to that. To their own creations. Jack Kirby, Lord knows what Jack Kirby and his estate, all these like creations that he's made, and he's lost the rights to that. And the corporations subsume that. And then to have fans do that as well, it's an interesting chain reaction, in a sense. You see like these companies do these to do this to their creators traditionally. And now you're seeing fans necessarily doing this to the corporations. And like, I don't know, is there like a sense of a double standard somewhat? Not exactly. It's not a perfect equation, but it's like Hmm. Hmm. Well, it certainly makes you think about the role of creator rights, publisher rights, fan rights, and how those intersect, because you have a multitude of different perspectives, and anything's complicated when you get money involved. Um, You know, I would like to think that there is a perfect world where we can sort of all all live in a a happy dreamland where um, people are recognized for their work where, you know, there's this sense of collaboration because it's something that comics and specifically the superhero genre has thrived on, this collaboration and fans becoming creators and input and change. Um, But I think 
increasingly, especially in the digital era, um, you know, there's this question of who owns what and who has rights to what. Mm-hmm. And I guess coming from sort of, I keep representing the bookstore, but coming from that side of things, you know, I know a lot of creators and publishers and I know the struggles that they go through to keep producing this input or this output um, and, you know, the heart and the soul and the resources that they put in. And so I tend to be a bit more sympathetic with that side. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I feel like I'm siding <laughs> with, uh, uh, was it David and the Giant? What? Goliath? Goliath. David Goliath. Yes. I, I know my Bible history. I'm a good American Southerner. <laughs> uh, I feel like I'm siding with Goliath a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, these are the people that are, you know, sort of putting in a lot of resources into this work. And I think in a sense do have some ownership over it, but I think you're making a really good point that the fandom, this support also, you know, has a lot to do with these creations and it's not certainly something that can be ignored or pushed to the side or completely discounted. Right. It just makes you wonder, do fans have a right to sell works like this? And part of me wants to be like, yeah, sure, because that's how you're building a community, but it is taken away from corporations and perhaps the families that do own the rights to these characters. Some of these families do now, and is that necessarily fair? I love, and I participate in this as a fan. I'm not a creator, but when I go to cons, I love buying this artwork, and I love having this and having that connection with this artist at my level. And it's like, it would be such a shame to have that sense police, to feel like that your fandom is being policed or contained. It's a complicated issue, and like, I'm not claiming I have a right answer here, but at the same time, it just makes you really wonder, like, does anyone have a right to fandom? Does anyone have a right to these characters? When it seems like it's not someone, it's everyone. And there are so many people's accounts and feelings that you have to take into this. That is true. Um, But they are owned. They don't belong to everybody. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's my hard truth, hot take for this news story. (laughs) Hard, spicy take. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Exclusive. No, thank you so much for that. So, moving on, I want to talk about the Gail Simone Punisher Twitter issue. I don't know if you've heard of this. I have not heard of it because I am in a dark hole of final papers, but I'm here for everything you just said. Please lay this on me. Thank you. So, I'm getting my Twitter screen caps from Greg Evans, who wrote for Indie 100 under the title, Guy Gets Brutally Taken Down After Trying to Mansplain the Punisher to a Female Comic Book Author. <laughs> oh, God bless. <laughs> oh, yeah. God You're... bless, I'm here for everything that's about to happen. Oh, yes, folks, you signed up for this. Not everything, but, you know. <laughs> I like that citation. Not everything. <laughs> so, Gail Simone on March 5th, wrote on Twitter, the Punisher would be a lot prettier if he smiled more. If you've ever read Gail Simone's Twitter feed, this is Gail Simone's Twitter feed in a nutshell. She very much is teasing. She very much likes to have provocative statements like that. Not like overly provocative where people are getting attacked like this, but stuff along that line. But that's a pretty funny tweet. I think we can all agree. (laughs) That he would be prettier if he smiled more? Well, it just the just even in the context that is it's like it's a tweet that is speaking to an audience that understands this tradition, this character, mm-hmm. and the fact that she's marrying kind of this 
you know, fantastic comics tradition with this sort of real life problematic, uh, you know, women should smile more and really, I think, highlighting both the double standard, but also tweaking the nose of this very overly serious character who opens himself up to this tweaking. Um, you showed me, was it uh, the Punisher versus, versus Archie or meets <gasps> Archie? Yeah, the Punisher yeah, versus Archie. Classic comic, folks. Mwah. Yes. If you have missed this, it is absolutely wonderful and necessary and a must read. Facts. But actually, speaking of tweaking... Anyway, back to Gail Simone. <laughs> no, I'm happy you said that because there was more to this tweet. She added afterwards, quote, All I'm saying is, give the ladies a little eye candy. I don't think I should have to support a show that clearly hates half its audience by not showing a little more butt cleavage. End quote. <laughs> and so... Is she, talk is she talking about the Netflix show here? Yes, the Netflix Punisher show. Fantastic. Yes. And so this individual, who we're not going to name because we don't want to attack anyone, he responded, quote, um, I know what you're getting at here, but the jab doesn't work due to his backstory and personality. He actually has a huge plot point as to why he doesn't smile a lot. Try harder, end quote. To which Gail Simone replied with a photo of her bookshelf with all the comics titles with her name on the spine. And this person responded, quote, nice collection of what looks to be mostly female-centric comic books. That literally has nothing to do with my comment, nor the topic under discussion. Unless if you're pointing out what is the most likely fact that you know very little about Punisher's backstory. To which someone else replied, read the names of the writer on the spine, now look at her name. The individual again replied, this is so riveting, I imagine, for all of you. Please check out Indie 100 if you want a visual for this. He replied, Kay, so she's a comic book author. That actually makes her case look worse, seeing as how she would know better. Gail Simone replied, dude, between the two of us, which one has actually written The Punisher, do you think? And just to say, at the end, this person did apologize publicly to Gail Simone, saying that they misunderstood, and Gail Simone accepted the apology. It, there are no hard feelings between anyone. Nobody should be continuing this or attacking this anymore. But again, as funny as this interaction is, and I, I do admire Gail Simone for how she handled that. I felt she handled it very well. Like, let's actually talk about mansplaining and, like, the legacy of characters and, like, fandom and being able to, like, make fun of another character and feeling the need to defend it. Can we discuss this? Oh, yes, absolutely. You know that this is a particular pet topic of mine. Yes. Um... But first of all, a couple of points that I would like to bring up. This is my hot take. If you make any statement and then say, but, most cases you are effectively erasing your previous statement. So I understand that this young man or older man or whoever it was, mm -hmm. um, was trying to, to, you know, engage with her while also explaining in some way what he thought might have been a, a disconnect. I don't know. I'm trying mm -hmm. to be generous here because mm -hmm. I feel like being generous in these instances is difficult, but sometimes helps us build a bridge. Mm -hmm. um, I really actually appreciate that you brought up that he, you know, after he'd been taken to church, <laughs> uh, apologized and sort of recognized publicly that there might have been a breakdown. Mm -hmm. But I also feel kind of bad for Gail Simone, who, you know, initially made this just straight fire tweet. Very funny. Um, definitely my kind of humor. Mm -hmm. uh, just bringing it all around. And 
the fact that when she was, I imagine when she was confronted with this tweet, you know, if it was something I encountered as, you know, poor little anonymous old me, which I love, uh, <laughs> I could have just ignored this guy. I could have walked away. I would have been like, I don't have time for that. I don't have to deal with that. I have my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I imagine that she felt the need to engage with him publicly to show that this kind of communication is problematic you know, even if it wasn't intended that way, uh, that it's, I don't think, appropriate to come to somebody clearly making a joke. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I would describe myself as, like, a surface Punisher fan. Like, oh. I've read some comics mm-hmm. here and there. I enjoy the character. I'm very interested in the way he fits into the superhero continuity and how it's been built. Yeah, I'm fond of him when he's trying to kill Archie. That's usually my only experience. I mean, yes, him. <laughs> absolutely. But I wouldn't describe myself as, like, hardcore Punisher fan. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure there are people out there who know a lot more about him. But I can still get this joke. Yeah. It's a, it's a surface joke. Mm-hmm. It's very funny. It's very clever. But the fact that he felt like he needed... To one, come to her and say that she didn't know what she was talking about. Yeah. And two, imply that she didn't know anything about comics because the comic books she were showing were female-centric. Yes. Sir. Sir, please. Sir, please read anything on the internet about women in comics and come back to this Twitter thread. Honestly, though, just the fact that you're questioning someone's validity based on the comics that they've read. And this strikes personally with me because I've been a lifelong Archie fan and I've had experiences in comic shops where I've been told I don't really read comics or, like, why would I be here? Like, it hasn't been a hospitable environment for me. But now it sort of is with the comics of Gail Simone, Marjorie Liu. It's become such a better, more hospitable place. But a lot of my comics reading came from the supermarket or web comics because until I joined this program, until I joined, like, my previous work at Comicsverse, you know, it just wasn't hospitable because of actions like this. And yeah, I agree with everything that you're saying. Um, again, I'm happy this one has a happy ending, but it reminded me so much of freaking Comicsgate. Oh, yeah. Just like this attack of like, you know, you don't know what you're talking about, me needing to explain because this is precious and sacred. The Punisher is precious and sacred. No media should ever be precious or sacred enough where you're questioning someone's inclusion into this community. That's a problem with you or the character. That's not the other person. Well, and so often when people bring up the fact that this isn't traditional or this isn't Mm -hmm. how the character is supposed to be, I kind of want to ask, like, which one are you talking about? Um, We, Rachel and I have been lucky enough to be... um, in a class with Professor Chris Murray uh, on the topic of superheroes, um, which is one of his main areas of study. Uh, Really a fantastic experience for the both of us. Um, But one of the things that we have learned, both looking at the past and into the future, is that there is no one iteration of any superhero. And the times and the changes are so vast that it's, I think, hard to say, well, you don't know this character. Well, I don't know this character from when. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's this part of the comics community that feels like, um, new audiences or new stories are trying to steal their space and mm. take their space away from them. And I don't think it's true. I think we can all play in the same sandbox. We all love this thing and we can all push it to be better on all fronts. You know, 
no one wants to destroy anybody's favorite stories, but I think a hallmark of the superhero genre is that it grows, it expands, like higher, further, faster, man. Um, what I care about is seeing and continuing to see great stories. And I also personally feel that part of seeing great stories is a widening diversity in this genre. Mm -hmm. I think you tell better stories. I think you get more angles. I think you see a wider, more powerful fandom. That's what we were talking about earlier, the power of fandom. Yes. Why are, why are we locking people out? Absolutely. The fact that we can have a character like the Punisher with his backstory, but we can also have him in an Archie comic where he is somewhat in a goofy setting and playing game and flirting with Miss Grundy pre-Riverdale. It's like, that's the beauty of comics. Continuity is a blessing and a curse, I find, in a lot of ways. It's a blessing because it gives you something stable. It gives you something to relate to other people with. And that's the power of media. That's the power of art. So that I can see myself, my humanity, in you, and vice versa. But it becomes such a weapon of destruction when we make continuity the object and we put it between another person and ourselves. Well, absolutely. And I think we can, we can kind of see when you get stuck in a place, mm -hmm. it gets old, it gets stale. And, you know, I have a personal vested interest in seeing these characters survive forever. Um, and I don't think you can do that by staying still. I think you need to constantly move, constantly grow, constantly learn. Um, you know, superheroes are like sharks. If you stop swimming, you die. But if you keep moving, you are a dangerous and wonderful part of the sea. <laughs> I literally like, is she going to go with punching sharks in the face? Are we jumping the shark? Where are we with the shark metaphor? I, that was beautiful. I just love the fact that like, or Dory. Dory <gasps> just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Hopefully we don't get an intellectual property strike from Disney. But... <laughs> Sorry, Disney, we're not making any money. <laughs> we're broke post-grad. You think money comes to us? It personally flees. Money becomes sentient and flees from us now at this point. No, but thank you for your comments, and I couldn't agree more. And so for our last bit of news, I wanted to look at the story from the New York Times Online, written by George Jean Gustinez. My apologies if I mispronounce your name. Titled, A Comic Book Publisher Creates Its Own Origin Story. And so in this article, Gustinez was um, introducing a new publishing company called Artists, Writers, and Artisans. It is It involves Bill Jemis, Axel Alonso, who have worked like big names on the Marvel oh, side, yeah. and Jonathan F. Miller, who's also an industry person. And so the three of them have come together to kind of challenge the traditional publishing models in the States. So in the New York mm -hmm. Times article quotes that there are two publishing models, the flagship character ones like DC and Marvel with their stables, and the creator-focused one of Image. And so in the, w, in, the, in the article, they're saying that AWA will, quote, have interconnected superhero comics like DC and Marvel, as well as standalone series like Image, and all of its creators will have a financial stake. End quote. So pretty much there's going to be a superhero universe, but the creators own the characters and they'll be paid to produce their works as well as have a percentage of the company. It could be either or or both. So they have a stake in the success of this company while still retaining their characters who will interact with other creators' characters. Fantastic. I'm nodding along. I'm yes. i in all of this. Absolutely. And I thought it was interesting because J. Michael Straczynski, who is now also involved in this, I believe on the creator side, he said, quote, at DC and Marvel, 
you always kind of know where the guardrails are. And he noted that there's an obligation to bend but not break their flagship characters. Again, going along maybe the fan arts route that we were talking before with Will Terry. And he goes on to say that with the creator-owned work, quote, you can go as far as you want since only you bear the consequences if you mess up. And the article also mentioned um, other publishing company, TKO Studios, who's a new company. They'll binge release their miniseries as well as release collected issues at the same time, as opposed to the more traditional model of having each issue published individually within a time span and then have the collected issue. Exactly. And they also mentioned Ahoy Comics, where that controversial Second Coming of Jesus comic that Vertigo dropped, they're going to be publishing that now. So Jesus will be coming. It's the third coming, apparently, because it took a while for him to come. But Jesus will arrive. Yes, and just before we get there, I'd also like to plug in some of AWA's titles for anyone who might be interested. There will be American Ronin, about a highly trained corporate operatives. Fight Girls, about warriors vying to be queen of the galaxy. guess they didn't know that Gail Simone existed. We already have one, but it's, it's cute. They can try. It's fine. And also Bad Mother, about parents searching for a missing daughter. If any of this sounds of interest to you, please check out AWA and their titles as they come along. So, Grace, the spicy take. What do you think of, like, this new publishing model? Is it, like, good for creators? Good for company? Like, what are your thoughts? Well, I would like to say that I have the extremely mild take. <laughs> The lukewarm tamale take. Yeah, this is not spicy at all. Um, but it's very it's very sort of nuts and bolts. I would be interested um, in what their distribution model is going to be. Because mm. uh, you see, there a lot of what, you know, the, distribu- or the practices that get attributed to Marvel and DC, mm-hmm. um, a lot of that's tied up in their single distributor system. Diamond. Yeah, Diamond. Mm-hmm. Um. And so there's a lot of interesting interplay there between, you know, comic book stores, Diamond, uh, Marvel and DC. Uh, and so with this with this new structure, it sounds really exciting. Um, they care about a lot of things that I think are important in supporting creators, getting innovative new comics, sort of opening up the realm. Um, and I'm very excited to see what they come out with. But my not spicy take at all is I think it's really important to also focus on um, sort of the distribution in the storefront. And I would be really interested to see what decisions they're making there. Um, you know, when you mentioned TKO Studios sort of binge releasing and releasing, you know, all the issues and collections, um, you know, I feel like that opens up a lot of different markets because while, say, independent bookstores, it's hard to, you know, manage issues and carry issues the same way you would, you know, with a dedicated comic book store, but, you know, they can better promote and house collections. So it kind of opens up that market. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I do have feelings about that because I do love this idea of a concentrated comic book shop, that curation, Mm -hmm. being able to talk with somebody, um, even though there has been some sort of plot, problematic history there Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's probably a whole nother podcast talking about the comic book store and what we love and what makes us feel uncomfortable Mm -hmm. Um, but like the indie bookstores I don't want to see them go I want them to be here I think they're important Uh, but so I guess I'm moving away from the creator and I'm more like how are you getting that out there (laughs) how are you selling to readers Um, and I think the success of their venture will depend a lot on that 
Absolutely. And to go off what you're saying, when I was first initially reading this and I saw two publishing models and they listed below, I was like, um, what about crowdsourced comics? It's like, what about Kickstarter and Patreon and all of these other places? Because there's a more direct market nowadays as well that I think is much more liberating. Again, as someone who never felt particularly at home in a lot of comic shops I've been to, certainly not all, but most, I really am much more supportive of a direct market where I can support the creator more or less directly and Kickstarter will take out a sum. They go to a mini like publisher, get as many copies as they want done, and they send it to me. I like that immediacy a lot more because it means that the artist can get more of a share. They can do the control models. They control every aspect of it. And there are certainly downsides to that in terms of production value. I'll be the first to admit that. I've sometimes made artistically questionable comic purchases after the fact. (laughs) And, of course, I do love my Archie, and I do like having those legacy and being able to see that supermarket. But I don't think you can talk about publishing comics today without really taking into account Kickstarter and Patreon and these other crowdsourcing things. Like, I feel like you're missing part of the puzzle because this has been such a liberating aspect that, as a company, that accompanied to, like, web comics has really changed the game. And I don't think it gets enough credit, quite frankly. I love a good publisher, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, there's something much more liberating. And I'm so grateful to be in this time in comics right now because I can directly support a creator. I know they'll directly have their own rights. I can see different stories. I have more of an opportunity to see myself, a woman of color, in comics when there are creators like Bingo Love with T. Franklin and having works like that. I love that comic so much. It's a master. Please, yeah, folks, like, we're not getting paid to do this again, but also, please, (laughs) also get Bingo Love. (laughs) I was totally on board with everything you were saying, and then I got derailed by Bingo Love. Um, No, I think that's really important, and I think oftentimes a lot of the mainstream dialogue Mm -hmm. uh, about comics sort of feels a little behind sometimes. Mm. Um, Yes, Marvel and DC are very important. Yes, image is very important. They all play a huge role in this culture and the way that we see comics. But you're right. There's also an incredibly powerful direct market, digital market. Um, And I think that has to be taken into account. You know, what I would love to see from AWA is a marriage of the strengths of Mm. these these two sort of uh, ways of getting comics out into the world. Uh, Of course, might be... My inner Debbie Downer is like, it'll just be the worst parts. (laughs) But, but I have faith. I want to see what happens with this because you have some really exciting people attached to it. You have a really exciting model. And, you know, I hope that they're going to show us something that can continue to keep us excited about the future. Absolutely. And I think part of that will also have to do with the kind of stories that they choose to publish. Like, they've already gotten quite big names. You've got Straczynski, I know Frank Cho. We have so many exciting creators on board, but what about the stories that you're telling? Like, I love a good superhero universe. I love a good crossover. But at the same time, like, what are you adding to this genre? You're doing something great. I like this new model. I like that creators are owning it. I like that their characters will be able to interact. But, like, why don't we play around with genre as much as publishing conventions as well? I'm here for it. Yes. And I'm not a creator, so, like, maybe I don't know the complexities of this, but 
there are ways to really have fun. Like, we just took the superheroes module, and, like, at the end, I loved reading Aaron Hicks' The Adventures of Superhero Girl. It was such a great commentary on the history of girls not being there in comics, and just, like, these the humor of it all. It's like, let's have fun with superheroes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, sometimes I'm just struck silent by your brilliance. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll, yeah sure, we'll call it that. <laughs> That's true. It's true. It's absolutely true. Um, and I think going back to some of our our earlier conversations, like about the Gail Simone joke, yes, there are a lot of important issues that we need to be talking about, that we need to be pushing for. But let's all have fun, too. Mm-hmm. Let's make it a place that is safe for people to have fun. But let let it also be a place of fun. Yes. <laughs> let's remember why we enjoy it. And some of it is the fact that there are issues of Batman that still make me cry every single time without mm. fail. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but also places where we can laugh and, like, have a good time and not be sort of blocking people out. So hopefully hopefully we'll, we'll look into the future. Absolutely. Grace, thank you so much for this wonderful discussion. I'm always in awe of how, like, I can just spring news on you. She had no preparation for any of this, and it sounds like the perfect soundbite. This sounds like a conference, um, postgraduate conference. Mm, I'm just saying, hot take here, Grace is the future. <laughs> but before we get to our future segment, um, it's been a pleasure to do this with you, Grace. And part of the reason I wanted to do this for the present section is that all of this is happening in time. We looked at the past before, but there's so much going on in our current present that we all play a role in. And I really encourage anyone who's listening to us, first of all, thank you as well for being a part of this discussion. And let's keep having a discussion. Discuss this with other people. Discuss this online. Discuss this with us if you can somehow contact the studio. I mean, we have people on the phones right now in this live studio audience that we don't. So, no, but please keep this discussion going because this affects us. This is our community. We have to make it a safe space for all of us. So feel free to follow these events as they happen more often. Feel free to search for yourself. Just be a part of this. Well, and, you know, while I'm waiting for a future answer on the legalities of fan art of the Punisher's butt cleavage, (laughs) (laughs) hopefully from AWA, uh, tying that all together there. Just making it happen. I really just wanted to highlight Punisher Butt Cleavage again. Um, thank you, Gail Simone, for everything you bring us. Queen of the galaxy, indeed. Um, but speaking of that, Gail Simone, you know, we really encourage you. We're, you know, these are our hot takes. We're talking about things in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things we've talked about that we really want to highlight is when you encounter issues like this, when you get into a gray area where, you know, there's multiple different sides, we encourage you. Go out, read, research, read from both sides, Um, know what's going on and who the players are and what their different perspectives are and why they say and feel the things that they feel. Um, It's going to make you a much more interesting, well-rounded human being. And, you know, it opens you up to all these different narratives, all these different positions. Um, I can guarantee y'all I'm going to be researching quite heavily the legalities of fan art um, Mm -hmm. and sort of. You know, I don't know where I come down on that issue, but I know there's a lot of different perspectives and I know that I will be researching all the different sides to sort of get the the best, clearest, closest to the truth picture that there is. Yes. And speaking of different sides, it's okay not to have answers to these questions. I don't have answers to any of these discussions or questions, 
but it's okay to live in gray as long as you know where you are and where we all need to be. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's not always about having the answers, as you said. Sometimes <laughs> it's just about listening and, you know, taking information as it comes to you. Absolutely. Again, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the future. All right. So, you know, we kind of ended the present section talking a little bit about what you can go into and do in the future um, and how to sort of handle all these news stories. Uh, But more importantly, let's talk about us. So we're in this fantastic uh, Masters of Comics and Graphic Novels at the University of Dundee. Mm -hmm. Rachel, what do you see for yourself after you leave this program? Well, pulling out my crystal ball at the moment. Fantastic. Um, Part of me, like, I've been wrestling with this for months because a year really does go by so quickly. I would love to go back to, like, comics media work and comics journalism. I loved my work at Comicsverse. I loved being able to connect with other people, to edit. I found such fulfillment and confidence in myself and helping someone create a discourse and seeing other people reply to their articles and, like, creating a community. That's something I would love to do with my life. And I feel like this program has given me connections and new ways of looking at that. So I would love to go back, whether it's Comics First or somewhere in the UK. I just really like to come back to the community because I've really, comic, it's so corny, but comics has introduced me to people who have introduced me to myself. And so I would be honored and blessed if that is my future. At the moment, I'm not entirely sure. And I'm scared about it every single day of my life. But if nothing else, I'm grateful for this. And the fact that I've gained skills and I've met people who I can carry with me into my future. How about you? Um, well, first of all, that was utterly fantastic and entirely beautiful. And I can't imagine a person that I would be more excited and interested to see as part of the dialogue surrounding comics. Um, you know, whether through journalism or editing. Um, So I'm really excited for your future. Thank you. More terrified about my future. (laughs) Um, But I I have to say I've had the great fortune to volunteer in the University of Dundee archives in addition to being a part of this fantastic program. Um, And, you know, the people who work down there are incredibly fantastic and sort of opened up this world of archiving to me. Um, And I'm very interested in pursuing... Um, work as a comics archivist. There's a lot of steps between here, you know, and now and that future. Um, But I think it's really important. You know, we were talking about uh, research and looking at different perspectives. And I think when it comes to the tradition of comics, it's really important to have access to primary sources, um, you know, to have access to stories um, from voices that may not be heard, that may not be part of the mainstream sort of secondary conversation around the myths of what these superheroes have become. Let's look at the comics originally. Let's, you know, collect pieces by women, by people of color, by queer people, um, and any and all intersections of beautiful identities. so that is that is my grand idealistic goal. Um, I'm very excited for it. I'm also very terrified. We have a dissertation between now and then, though, dun, dun, dun. which we're definitely not going to talk about. Mm. Um, so now that we have spiked both of our anxiety levels to the max, talking <laughs> about the future, yeah. um, let's let's end on a happy note with some really 
exciting events that are coming up in the very near future uh, that we hope to see a lot of you listeners at. Um, so would you like to kick it off? I would be honored. Um, first on our list, we'd like to mention, so one of our professors is releasing a book titled Representation and Memory and Graphic, Graphic Novels. Representation and Memory and Graphic Novels. It's coming out the 8th of May through Rutledge. And, I mean, Dr. Golnar has been one of the best assets to have her in her course, to have autobiographics with her international critical. She's so giving and she knows how to facilitate a conversation. So I think anybody would be lucky to have a conversation with her via her book. So please, please consider buying it. Absolutely. Um, and we've been privileged to sort of hear some of the ideas that she unpacked um, in this book in class. And let me tell you all, 10 out of 10 would recommend. Um, <laughs> And speaking it, of academia, mm-hmm. uh, we also uh, borrowed our theme um, from the University of Dundee's uh, postgraduate conference. Um, so Arts and Humanities in the Community, Past, Present, and Future. It's going to be on the 9th of May at the Dalhousie Building. Um, and conversations and presentations will include thoughts on the past, present, and future of Dundee and how all of Dundee's communities can sort of be involved in a lot of the, you know, huge changes that have happened in the city recently. And also, later in May, going back to Dr. Golnar, if you would like to hear her thoughts on memory, then please consider coming to Ladies Do Comics. In our last podcast with Phil, Phil mentioned how we were planning this, and we now have a date! Woo! Yes, it will be the 31st of May, which is a Friday. It's going to take place at the Dundee Comics Creative Space, which is in the Vision Building. So it's across the street from the Tower Building at the University. You take the pathway behind Giddy Goose and you are there. And yes, during our Dundee's first Ladies Do Comics event, we will be having Dr. Golnar speak about her work. And we're going to be having a panel discussion with people discussing memory and comics and trauma. But in a very safe way. Hopefully you will not be traumatized by this. And it'll just be great to have this discussion in person. Hopefully if you're in the Dundee area, we would love to have you come. And we're really excited to see this forum uh, come to Scotland. It was started by uh, Nicola Streeton and Sarah Lightman. Um, and they've really done a lot of great work and sort of, they describe it as a woman-led forum um, for building up UK comics creators. Uh, So while it is sort of technically led by um, those who identify as female, um, it is definitely a welcome space for all identities, all experiences, and all perspectives to sort of build up the creation of these wonderful things called comics. And we hope to see you guys there. Yes. So thank you for bearing with us during this takeover. Absolutely. Uh, We're going to try and slide this in before Phil realizes that we've taken over the studio. Well, he's gone through the lasers and he's wrestling the crocodiles in the moat we built. So, yeah, we're going to have to start wrapping this up because after that, it's only, you know, the hired assassins. But... I know. I don't think I don't think they're going to stand up long against Phil. So, yes. without further ado, yes, uh, we would like to thank um, our Comics Masters program for giving us the background and the opportunity for this. Our course mates for being so inspiring and wonderful, Doctors Chris Murray, Doctor Golnar, and Phil for letting us, you know, um, 
chloroform him, send him to Canada, and see him, him fight his way back into the studio at this very moment. And I would like to thank Grace. All these people have made this possible and have made me a better person for it. So thank oh. you. And thank you, listener. And I would like to thank all of those people and you, Rachel, for being uh-huh. such a fabulous conversationalist and always pushing me to sort of research more, go further, think harder. So Yes. And on that note, whether past, present, or future, stay you. Always about the comics. Always. Always.